Well, um, I want to ask that uh, you pray with me, and as we pray, that you would pray for me. Uh, I've preached emotional messages before, and um, <clears throat> this one is not an exception. Uh, this message, maybe five years ago, I could have preached very uh, academically, very theologically, and very uh, passionately, but from a distance. And now this message lives with me, um, and she has a name, and she looks at me every morning, and she prays with me every night, and she sits at my dinner table. And so um, my hope in this message is not to um, draw a lot of emotional, sappy things out, but rather biblical things, theological things that are set on fire by the Spirit of God that might change our hearts and our minds. That's my desire. So pray with me that that will occur. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, my heart is overflowing and my mind is racing and I am so inadequate to to handle your word and um, I'm really... um, overwhelmed at the fact that you would choose to participate, to allow us to participate in what you are accomplishing. And so I'm going to have to have you more uh, readily holding my tongue and guiding my mind and my thoughts and Directing my heart that the gospel might shine in these moments and that it might not just turn into some pep rally for kids, but that it would be, that it would truly be a glorious, amazing presentation of the gospel through the lives of meaningful children whose eyes haunt us and whose dirty faces call for us. But yet more than that, in their faces, And in our minds, let us see that in all of these orphans is a portrait, a living, breathing, moving portrait of who we are spiritually before we know you. And then, God, would you show the miraculous beauty of your gospel message as I speak about your Bible, your text, your words to us on adoption. May we begin to see that that the heart of the whole gospel is contained in adoption. It it is not a side issue. It is a central issue. And may you bring out of us and inspire in us this passion, this zeal to spread your name to the four corners of the world through uh, many things, but mainly through uh, a ministry to the least among us. God, help me now. And... um, Let your spirit go before me and through me and in me and through your words. Amen. The plight of fatherless children has always been a concern for the people of God. This is not a new issue that has risen for us in the 21st century. When the church is living out her status as the children of God, she cannot but help, she cannot help but gather under her wings orphans of the world. Our situation is startling. You've heard some statistics, and statistics do not lie. We have a massive problem in our world today. And it's not our economic recession, global warming, lack of universal health care. It's not rising unemployment. That's not the staggering problem that faces our world. And it is not like some of our leadership in this state believe it to be the rising number of homeless animals that roam our streets and fill our humane societies. That is not the problem of our world. The leaders of our nation and our state and our city 
can choose to focus on all of these issues, and it is right in their place of government to focus on many issues, not just one. But the largest humanitarian concern in the world is without question the plight of 147 million off of the UNICEF site this morning. I've gathered that little figure. And then the caveat, if we include the South American children who live on the streets in our numbers, and those on the continent of Africa who live without parents in war-torn nations, we are confident that the number of orphans in our world stretches over 200 million children. 200 million children. Orphans who have little to no hope. In their current situation. And we in the U.S. are not without our orphans. The number's over 500,000 now. And growing. And those available for adoption. At the inconvenience of paperwork through your government agency. Not funds. Just inconvenience of your time. In our foster care system is now approaching 150,000 children. So you can take off the roadblock of money. I can't afford to adopt from China. It's $27,000. I don't have it. Okay. Okay. So, So go to DHR and tell them you want to foster children or you want to adopt one that's available. There are all kinds of roadblocks. There's all kinds of excuses. The numbers are astounding. And yet, as compared to the situation that we face here in the United States of these orphans, it's a small number that we deal with here in the United States. 500,000 is minuscule in relation to the world. I was looking at the United Nations uh, information this week. And they are now warning nations all over the world that by 2010, there will be 44 million new orphans due to the AIDS epidemic in just 34 countries in Africa and South America. 44 million new orphans. I told you there's 200 million. And now they're saying 44 million more will be orphaned. That quote and that thought seems overwhelming. And that was their estimates as fresh as 2005. UNICEF claims that in just a few years the world will face an unprecedented struggle because of the orphans which live inside the borders of nations around this world. Governments will screech to a halt before they figure out how to solve this problem. So we can spend our time talking about the plight of pets and wells, and trees. Or we can spend our time talking about the heart of God for children. In India today, there are thousands of little girls and little boys who have been abandoned by their families. Most of them because they have a cleft lip or cleft palate. And because of this relatively minor birth defect, they are told, no one can love you. In Thailand tonight, orphaned girls sit, even as we sit in comfort, they sit in their rooms weeping. Hurting as American businessmen pay less than the cost of a meal at Shula's Steakhouse in Birmingham to molest and rape them. And today in China, over six million children are sitting in orphanages that are impoverished and institutional. The sin of most of these orphans in these orphanages is that they were born. A girl. 
tonight in Brazil, children will crawl in an alleyway between cardboard walls, hungry, because they've begged for bread all day and no one gave them any food to eat. And I haven't mentioned Ukraine or Russia or Romania or you name the country. Uganda, Liberia, or the Sudan. Where the reality of war is that children live as orphans in refugee camps without any parents to protect them from the violence that rages all around them. The plight of the orphaned children is unimaginable for most of us. But maybe maybe you're thinking, what does all this have to do with me? Some of you are so wrapped up, and some of us, myself included, are so wrapped up in comfort and security that when you hear these facts, you simply turn your eyes so that you don't have to watch. And the Bible clearly teaches that we who are in fellowship with Jesus Christ were all orphans before we were adopted by God, who is our Father. You were an orphan. I was an orphan. Some of you in this room are still orphans. Today, I want to look with you at a text in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. So if you have God's Word, a copy of it before you, I want you to turn there with me. I'm going to preach a message entitled, Adoption, the Heart of the Gospel. And I want to ask that you would stand with me as we read God's Word in honor of His Word, which has been given to us. Verse 14, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom? By that Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. May God be honored by the reading of His Word and may He multiply in us the understanding of this Word through His Spirit. You may be seated. Let me make four points quickly about this text which we have in front of us. The first point that we will look at from this text is that we have been given the right to be called sons of God because we have the spirit of adoption in us. The, the, the problem that we have often is when we come to a service like this, we get sappy and emotional. I do. We weep tears. And we think, That is awful. And that is so good that those families did that. But we we miss the connection between these orphans, them being cared for, and the very gospel of Jesus Christ. We, We just totally miss it. It's not intentional. It just happens. It happens to me. It happens, I'm sure, to you. And so you may have listened to the first part of this service and thought, this is all well and good, but what does that have to do with the gospel? It has everything to do with the gospel. This is why. Because the very heart of the gospel is that you and I were orphans, fatherless, dead in our wages and sin. But God. Who is rich in mercy. Gave a gift to us. Which is his son. And through him we have. Eternal life. We have the right now. To be called. The sons of God. Because we have the spirit of adoption. In us. And I capitalize spirit. Because this is not some sappy emotionalism feeling that floats through the world. 
Adoption, physical adoption, exists today only because spiritual adoption has occurred through the plan and the predestining power of God the Father. There would be, you notice the quote from Russell Moore Jr. in the little slideshow. There would be no adoption as we know it if it were not for the reality of the spiritual adoption. What separated Christians in the early church from their pagan neighbors was how they treated the orphan. It changed. It's changed. Their change spiritually caused them to do something for these children. So it is intimately connected. J.I. Packer, in his defense of justification by faith alone, says the very heart of the gospel is the positive justification gained by Christ in his death. What does he mean by that? When questioned, he said, I'm talking about adoption. Adoption, spiritually, is the positive reality of justification. You see, because on the cross, Jesus Christ paid for our sin. That means that we were in debt to God. The Bible says we were in such debt that it was impossible to pay. Not just because of the quantity of our sin, but the reality that we in ourselves are sinners. It's not the problem out there, sin isn't. The problem is, sin is us in our nature. We are sinners. And so anything we did in regard to earning God's love only earned for us condemnation. That's why work salvation is impossible. You cannot earn God's grace. It is unmerited favor, which comes to us through the cross. And He forgave our trespasses and our sins. In other words, there was a transfer from you to Christ. And what Christ gained from you was your sin. He was sinless. But on his very flesh, he carried the sins of those, of the many, of those who would believe, of the, those who would be called from every tongue and tribe and nation. He paid a real price that we could not pay. That is what we call the negative aspect of justification. There had to be a payment for sin, and Jesus is that payment. But that gets us to zero, okay? Now we don't owe, but we still are orphaned. We have no family. We have no standing. We have no position of righteousness. So the positive aspect of justification is that He transfers to us His righteousness. Okay? Technically, we can name that by anything we want to. We can talk about it in the theological realm, or we can use one word. Adoption. Redemption and adoption. Two words for the justification of God. God's wrath was satisfied. The payment was paid. The court ruled, we go free. Not because the payment wasn't made, but because it was made in full. That's not enough. Before we left... The bench, the judge said, praise God, he said, you don't leave this courtroom free. You leave a son. I choose you for my family. And so, for the rest of our lives, we don't approach him. We do not approach him as one garbed in just robes. Though He is just, we approach Him as Abba. We've been given the right to call Him Daddy, literally. What does adoption have to do with the Gospel, you might say? It's a great need, Carlton, but there's a lot of great needs. But there is no need in the world which the church, by meeting that need, preaches the gospel more clearly 
than to reach out to the orphan. There are a lot of pictures of salvation. A lot of them. Marriage, we've been in Hosea, and Aaron and I were talking about marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel. But the reality is we have divorced people among us and those who will be divorced in the future. And so in our world, marriage is a tough one, right? Because it carries baggage in real life. It's a beautiful picture, but it's not always in our life good. Marriage fails. Parenting, you know, birth birthing children. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel given us in John 3. Very plainly, we are born from above by the Spirit of God. What a beautiful picture. And all of us who have children say, I kind of get that. I see it. But then we have barren ones among us who can't have children and singles who've got no connection to it. You're not married. You're hoping you don't have a baby. Right? It's all kinds of things. But when I talk about adoption, there is nobody in the room who doesn't say, that is a beautiful picture. And so, we extol adoption at this church. Not because it's secondary, but because it is central to our proclaiming the gospel. If we don't work and labor for the orphan, we not only are disobeying the command of God in James 1.27, but we fail to show the lost world who our daddy is. Romans 8 is Paul's explanation of how God is reconciling the fallen world to himself through the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit in this passage is mentioned 20 times, 20 times, overwhelmingly uh, saturating this passage. And we see, and it is clear that this passage teaches us about the work of the Spirit in our past, present, and future salvation. And in verse 14, which we read, the fact is that those who are Christians, sons of God, are led by the Spirit. It's a fact. It's objective. Hear this. It is not subjective. You say, I don't get it. What's so exciting about that? Because you woke up this morning and you didn't feel like you were led by the Spirit. And you may be sitting in this room saying, I just don't feel it. But the objective reality is that if you are God's child, His Spirit guides, pulls, leads, disciplines you. It is a reality. How do we know it's a reality? And it's just not a possibility or some charismatic dream. Because the verb here, for all who are led, it's passive tense and it is It is not an imperative. Paul's not saying, hey, you need to go try to be led by the Spirit. You need to work hard and get in line with the Spirit and get filled with Him. In this passage, he doesn't say that. In regard to our salvation, it is in the indicative which he speaks, which you say, well, now you've gotten grammar on me. Indicative case simply points out that it is an objective reality. It's done. We don't sit as Christians, sons of God, saying, I hope, I hope God leads me. We sit saying, God does lead me. You heard it in the testimonies, didn't you? It comes out subjectively, but it is an objective reality. So when I fail, when I'm doing good, when I feel good, when I feel bad, when I'm sick, when, I'm, when everyone around me seems to be dying, when everything seems to be falling apart, I lose my job. You start to say, where is God? He's there. He's leading you. Objectively, it is accomplished through Jesus Christ. His Spirit is in us. So we see that in verse 14. This means that we are not trying to be led, but we are led. A true believer is guaranteed the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Then look at verse 15. 
as we look at why or that we have been given the right to be called the sons of God. When we became sons of God, we were not given the spirit of slavery. You see that in the first part. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Well, we might not have a great connection with this, but we have to remember that Paul is writing to Christians in the Roman world. And I think you'll understand it as I explain here. What does it mean that we haven't received the spirit of slavery to fall again into fear? What does that mean? I believe that it's referring to the pre-Christ, pre-Christian state of both Jews and Gentiles. Jews under the slavery of the law. As Paul calls it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, you were under the law. It was your tutor, it was your headmaster, it was your training, preparing you for Christ. It was slavery, though, in a sense. Because in our human nature, we strive to keep the law. And in trying to keep it, we fail, we break it, and we become accountable to it. And so we are made aware of our sin, our inability. The Gentiles, as Paul says in Galatians 4, the Gentiles were not under the Jewish law, but they were under the elemental principles of this world. You were under that, and I was under that. You know, fate and chance and karma and yin and yang, you know, those ideas of balance and all the super mystical things that guide us, right? This concept of the world, this philosophy of the world. We were all slaves in some way to the world and to the law. And yet God says, it doesn't matter what you were born under. You don't have that spirit any longer. The slavery. Which falls back into fear. You lived before you came to Christ in fear of God. A hundred percent of you did. I did. You might not have termed it fear of God, but it was fear of God. For some of you, that fear comes out in working harder and harder and harder to achieve and to look good. For some of you, it comes out in laziness because you have failed and you know you failed. You just give up and say, live and let live. I can't save myself anyway, but in the back of your mind always was the thought, what if I stand before a God who holds me accountable? Even the atheist lives in fear of God, fear that the God he has denounced might be real. God says you no longer have that spirit. You have been given the spirit of adoption. And so what is this in verse 15 which he Begins, begins to elaborate on. What is this? Well, in the Roman world, which Paul was writing, there was a method by which people were adopted. And that was that an orphan child might be taken into a home, cared for, given food, given clothing, given shelter, and they were a slave. And then through the process of years, they had no formal adoption process, but this was a form of adoption. And through the years, that child might endear himself to his master. And the master says, you no longer are my slave. You are my child, my son. He would be given full rights of a son. He would be brought under the tutelage of that family. He would be an inheritor equal with all the other children. This was the system which existed in the world that Paul lived in. Orphans in the Roman Empire became slaves and many of them became sons, full sons in their families. Now this adoption, once it was made, was permanent. The spirit of adoption. Once you were adopted in this Roman culture, because see, the Jews had no adoption system officially. They cared for orphans. They had no adoption. You, couldn't, you didn't make them your sons. That was a foreign idea in some ways around the world. There are only three known orphans which were in any sense brought into a family or adopted. And that was in the, in the Old Testament. The most famous being Eliezer. But it wasn't legal in a sense. It wasn't, it wasn't ratified until the Romans. And then God showed the world a picture through the Gentiles. 
Because once you brought this orphan in and made him your slave and then your son, you couldn't write him off. He was permanent. It was secure. Everything you owned, he now owned. And so we see in Romans 8 the spirit of adoption and We see this legal verbiage which tells us as a part of justification you could not disown an adopted child. There was no spirit of slavery. There was no fear in these adopted slaves because they could not be disowned. They were forever a part of their family. And it's that way today. Once taking an orphan in, it's a lifetime commitment. So we move to the second point. We now, because we've been given this spirit of adoption, cry out to God as our daddy because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. In verse 15, do you see what Paul's saying to Christians? You're not slaves of God. You are sons of God. He will finish the work of making you look like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor principalities, nor, nor present things or things to come, nor height or depth, nor anything else can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You say, Paul, how can you be so certain of your security in salvation? What if you fail? What if we fail? What if we fall back? What if we're unfaithful? Paul, I think if you were quizzing him, would say, I am certain because I have been given the spirit of adoption. And I now call God Daddy. I cannot be disowned. I'm a permanent, eternal member of this family. The spirit of adoption allows us to call him even daddy. It's no coincidence that in verse 15 we have the word Abba, which is an Aramaic word. And that may be insignificant to you until I say that that's the language Jesus spoke while he walked the earth. That was the spoken language of the Jews. And that might still be insignificant to you until I say that in Mark 14, verse 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he pleaded with his father, The night before he faced crucifixion, he moaned, Abba. Paul said, just like Christ said to his father, Abba, you Christians now say to him, Abba, Daddy. When Jesus wanted to express his relationship with his heavenly father, It was not in cold, legal terms. It was in intimate, relational terms. Abba. It must have been seared on the mind of the disciples. I think they were awake at that point. And I can imagine them sitting there thinking in the garden, this is unlike anything else we've ever seen. Who calls God Father? much less calls God Daddy. Who calls God that? This is the Son of God. And so it is informing Paul's writing, I think, that he uses the Aramaic to express the term that Jesus intimately referred to the Father and said, Now you cry out to Him by the Spirit of Christ, Abba, Father. And may I make the last point on this verse? It is not by... It is not by my abilities that I come and say, Daddy. It is the Spirit within me which cries out, Daddy. The voice which goes up before the throne of God and gives me standing is the voice of Christ. It is the blood of Christ. It is His Word, Abba, which goes before God, my Father. And so, we have this loving expression. 
And we see the beauty of adoption. God chose to adopt those of us who are orphaned due to our condition of sin. In Ephesians 1.5, it says, In love God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which we have been blessed in the Beloved. Oh, how glorious is the truth of adoption. God shouts, He shouts from the pages of the New Testament. You are no longer orphans. I have come to you. I have rescued you. You are my children. Thirdly, we see that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, which means that we inherit the whole of creation with Him. In Romans 8, verse 16, as we continue through the passage, we see the fact that in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, we have assurance in our inner man, in our spirit, that we will inherit the wealth and treasure of heaven in Christ. The reason we can be confident in this fact is that we are adopted into God's family. God has kept His promise to Abraham, which He made in the Old Testament. He has said yes and amen through His promises of the Old Testament, through Jesus Christ, and He has kept those promises to you and to me through Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, we see further that the truth of our inheritance through Christ is made clear, not only here in Romans, but also in Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of one woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You didn't know adoption was mentioned that much in the Bible, did you? It's amazing. And because you are sons, Paul writes, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are now no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. We will be the heirs not only of this fallen creation, which will be reclaimed for Christ. But in the New Jerusalem, everything will be ours through Christ. Everything. The whole world, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, has been given to Abraham through Christ. And through Christ, we have received the whole world. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be like His Son, gave us the Spirit of His Son, which is the Spirit of adoption, whereby we call Him Daddy and are guaranteed an inheritance. We can't be disowned. You can't lose your salvation. No matter what, nothing separates you from the love of God. Finally, in this passage, we see we will suffer because we are His children in this world, but we will inherit the glory of Christ in the age to come. Verse 17, Paul, as he always seems to do in these kind of passages, before we get too disconnected from reality, brings us to the earth to say, what you have coming is sure, but one other thing you must be sure of, you will suffer before you receive that glory. You will suffer. Five years ago, I would have been able to preach like this and preach this very message and it would have been probably a lot the same because my convictions haven't changed that much on this issue in five years. But since February the 11th, 2009, I not only lived the reality of adoption spiritually, but I lived the reality of adoption physically in my home. I cannot share with you all that I've learned about my personal salvation and salvation, which is the gift of God to all who believe in Jesus Christ. I can't relate to you every story that we've seen in our experience that makes that even more real. But I do want to give you a few points. The parallels that I see are, as I said, they're way beyond what I can do in this amount of time. But let me give you a few. Fatherless and without hope. That was our condition before Christ. Fatherless and without hope in this world. We were the enemies of God. We were the forsaken. We were struggling in our blood. No one cared for us. And we had a father in this world 
though he's no real father, who deceived us and continued to deceive us and the cultures we lived in. He was the enemy of our father also. On July the 1st, 2005, a woman in Shanxi province, for some unknown reason, took her newly born child in a baby carrier to a train station in Jinching City. It's a crowded place, bustling with people. And anonymously, she grafted into the crowd and she left her baby in the waiting room and she left. The baby began to cry. People began to ask around, whose child is this? No one knew. The police were called. She was taken to the local welfare institute. She was given a name because she had no name. Jin Yuan Yuan. Jin because of where she's from, Jinjing City. Yuan Yuan because she, she was named for being round. She lived in this orphanage for th- over three years. She was fatherless. She was without hope in this world. She lived three years with no thought, as far as I know, that she would ever leave this place. This was her home. She made the best of it. She had lots of compatriots, over 300, in a place that should have never held 200. They slept together. They ate together. They called each other family. But in this family, they learned many skills, most of which were made to adapt. They stole one another's food. They fought over the toy. A simple fight over a toy could turn into a battle for life and death. There was no hugs, no kisses, no tucks in at night, no as far as anyone knows, real affection. She had no hope. She had no father. We, in our spiritual condition, before Christ, are Jin Yuan Yuan. We are Yo-Yo. In our spiritual condition, we are Inna and Vitaly. But there was a plan and a cost. That little orphan in China lived her days as best she could with no idea that there were people over 10,000 miles away who were attending a Lifeline meeting in May of 2007. Just an informational meeting. Oh, this man and his wife had dreamed about adoption. They were rare, obviously, since college, since they were married. They always thought it'd be later. It's later, it's later. But in this informational meeting, it became clear. It's time. They returned home and within a week had the application filled out, sent in. The process had started. A plan was in place. And they began to work the plan. Tedious. Costly. It seemed never-ending. $27,000 invested. And this couple often heard the jeers of well-intentioned jeers, I'm sure, of friends and family who would say, you don't have that kind of money. You already have two healthy children. A boy and a girl, no less. What are you doing? But the plan was in place. There was no roadblock to stop it. It would happen. The cost was great. But it was not too great. 
But the thing about this plan is the one who most benefited had no idea the plan was even in existence. And the plan was being revealed to many people. And they were rejoicing. And they were apart. And they were sharing the plan. But there was such a gap. It was so far away. She had no clue. No way to know. And then February the 11th arrived, 2009, and this couple who had planned and paid stood in a cold, marble-floored building, staring out windows, pacing, hoping that nothing would go wrong as that orphan, still clueless, made a a four-and-a-half-hour car ride for the first time leaving the walls of her orphanage. And just a few minutes behind schedule, the door cracked. And standing there was this pitiful, smallish, deformed, covered in puke, little girl, scared to death because her world was turned upside down. She didn't ask for this because she didn't know to ask. It had been forced on her by a plan and by a family who had paid the price. Scared to death This little one stood in the door for what seemed like hours. (laughs) Immovable. I mean, her dad thought, she can't walk. But in those moments as she stood there looking at these people who she had no clue who they were or what they were saying, in her puke and in her deformed state and in her wretched condition, she thought, my friends are eating their afternoon snack. My IE. What happened to my IE? Can't somebody just take me back? That's my life. That's all I have. Scared to death. And yet, these who had planned and paid a cost stood open-armed saying, Mama, Baba, Mama, Baba. Spiritual sin is hard to break. It's gripped hold of every part of who we are. And it evidently... That's my life. That's all I have. Scared to death. To see itself, even after we move from that doorway and into the arms of our Heavenly Father, it still rears its head. You can fly across the world and put a child in an English-speaking home and they don't know the language. You can take them to this four-walled place and say, this is your room and it has all kinds of cool colors and paint and beds and toys. And they're overwhelmed. You can show them little people like them and say, this is your jijia, this is your gaga." And all they say inside is, no, I don't know them. You can take a child from an orphanage, you see, but the orphanage is deep in the child. But that same family that plans and pays persists relentlessly. 
calling this one into the family, closer into the family. It's a process. It takes a long time. It doesn't get done overnight. You see, she had a certificate which said you now belong to this family, but her name was Jin Yuan Yuan. Now people call her by this name she doesn't know and give her food she doesn't like and put her in a family that look funny and talk funny and take her stuff and nobody does anything about it. You know it's happening in their little mind when they sit at the table and the food is put on the table and they instinctively grab the plate like this and they put their head over it and they grab whatever they can that's close by and they shovel that food in and the first person that reaches for something next to their plate gets rudely interrupted there's all this fear and the mama and daddy don't spank. They pull that little one close and say, we didn't give you this spirit of fear. You have the spirit of a son, a daughter. You can call me daddy. This is your food. This pantry is yours. This supermarket filled with food will buy as much as you want. It's all yours. It's guaranteed. It will not fail. You're not alone. You're in a family. You have the spirit of adoption. There's no need to fear. But hard habits take time, don't they? And they keep rearing their head. Until one day, That little one who's called you Baba for three months without thinking when you come in the door says, Daddy! And you say, She gets it. Just a little bit, she gets it. You don't have a judge in heaven. Neither do you have one who formally and legally says, You're forgiven. You have one in heaven who planned before he created a star in the sky, before he made a blade of grass, before he breathed life into the first man, he planned to have you as his child. You didn't know it. But he did. And he didn't stop there because he knew you wouldn't be innocent and perfect. You would look like hell. And you would smell like it. And you would talk like it. And you'd act like it. And he said, my justice doesn't allow me to enter these people into my family. But my grace does. Here is my son. I love the world this way. I give my son to pay the price. And so, whatever your gotcha day was in Christ, he would say, it's forever. It's irrevocable. It is a covenant, not a contract. I have kept it. I will complete it. I will faithfully finish it. It will probably be years before Lily Ruth understands Clara fully gets it. Vitaly, in a living the reality of their adoption. But that day will come by the grace of God. Just like it may be years longer before you fully grasp hold of the reality of eternity through death and become, as he says in verse 23, fully adopted. 
with new bodies, possessing your inheritance. But that day's coming. And aren't you glad between then and now we have a daddy? How does this apply to Grace Fellowship? How does this apply? Grace Fellowship should be a church filled with adopted children. I make no bones about that. I don't apologize for it. There's no better way to show the gospel that I know of physically than through adoption. You may be here right now with all the excuses, and I just turn you over to God that He might impress on you the need and your, His ability to accomplish through you what He has planned. I trust Him with that. Because all of you won't adopt, and all of you don't need to adopt. But some of you have a savings account which you trust in more than God, which you need to assign over to a local ministry of some sort, Micah's Hope, the children's home, Lifeline. You need to take the whole savings account and give it that some orphans might come home. And some of you don't need to adopt one. You need to go to India and you need to work the rest of your days, as Amy Carmichael did, welcoming the fatherless into your ranks and mothering them until you die. But Grace Fellowship should, and by God's grace, will be filled with adoptions. Grace Fellowship should seek to fund adoption through Micah's Hope Adoption Fund. I don't ask for money at this church all that often. Sometimes people think I ought to ask for more. But I unashamedly ask you to give money to Micah's Hope Adoption Fund. We have a limited fund. But we have an unlimited God. And He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so I know, I trust Him, that some of you will give. I won't command it. That'd be too much. But I trust Him that He will impress it on you. And you're going to begin to hear the board of directors of this fund begin to ratchet up the campaign to raise money for this in the weeks to come. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would gather His forces and gather His money for His cause. And finally, Grace Fellowship should seek to find and share the love of Christ through expanded orphan ministry. Lifeline Children's Services, the Alabama Baptist Children's Home, two ministries here locally who have homes for unwed mothers who are pregnant. For children who are taken out of risky situations in the middle of the night often with no fathers. I make no bones about the fact that this church needs to be actively, physically, prayerfully, spiritually undergirding these ministries. And also, I say, is there not more we can do? More than adopting into our homes, shouldn't we be praying, how would we bring multiple, many orphans to safety? That was George Mueller's prayer. He made no apologies about loving the orphan. He lived in England, native of Germany. He saw in Europe in the 1800s a massive orphan problem. And he started orphan houses so that one, the children might know Jesus Christ and be saved. Two, that the world might see the kingdom of God physically expanding. And three, that the orphans might be fed and clothed and sheltered in a loving home. George and his wife labored for years, years upon years. When he started the ministry, there were no orphan houses known in England. And when he died, there were many across the countryside. Over 100,000 orphans were being cared for because one man said, there's more that can be done. 
at his funeral, coughing on the back of a horse-drawn carriage, pulled through the streets of Bristol. The children lined up at the window. Tears rolling down their face as their earthly daddy, who had died, passed them by. And as the assurance of their heavenly father comforted them that he would not leave them as orphans in the world. I'm telling you, Grace Fellowship, we have a task, I believe, given by God to minister to the orphan. Let us never fail. Let us never turn back. Let us press forward to present the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the vehicle of physical adoption. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, you are the father of the